podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Questo suono dal Sud America fino giù in Senegal, profumo d'Africa nella Nuova Guinea. La sentirai in Albania, che assomiglia a casa mia, riparte dal Belgio, arriva in Croazia, Slovacchia, Polonia e Romania. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Worldwide Series. This is a series all about our fans. I'm convinced that we have the best fans in the world, so I wanted to give our fans all over the world a platform where they can tell their stories, and together we can continue to grow this amazing community. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We're heading to Pittsburgh, USA for today's episode. The guest is someone you might recognize on Twitter as Fabian Ruiz Enthusiast. Scott, welcome to Forza Napoli. Thank you. Uh, honored to be on here. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I always love to have new guests on, and, and especially on this series, to hear their stories. We're going to spend a fair bit of time today reviewing the Fiorentina match, which was the latest addition to a long list of disappointments for Napoli fans, or that Napoli fans have endured over the last 30 years or so. There's a lot to talk about from that match, but we always start these episodes with our guest story. So let me ask you first, Scott, how did you become a Napoli fan? So it was uh, roughly December 2017, not when I became a fan, but... It was Christmas. I had just gotten the new FIFA game and I was looking to build a team, looking for good players. And I kept hearing about this guy, Dries Mertens, who was like really good in the game. So I start using him. And then obviously later on in the year was the 2018 World Cup. So I followed Belgium. And like this is when I was just getting back into into football. I'd watched previously, but not as attentive as I do now. You know, just being in the U.S., it's not very pushed here for viewing-wise. So 2018 World Cup passes. Belgium lost in the semifinals, and uh, that was that. So after that, I started following Merton's club. So I started just following Napoli. I didn't really know where to watch the matches. And then ESPN Plus picked up Syria. So I got that, and the 2019 season is when I started really watching. And then 2020, before the pandemic, I was avidly watching as many games as I could. And uh, here I am today. That's pretty cool, actually. I mean, it's not uncommon, actually, believe it or not, for fandom to start with video games. FIFA, obviously, being a big one with football culture. You're not Belgian, though, are you? You became, I guess, more of a Mertens fan than anything, and, and that's why you followed the Belgium? Yeah, it was uh, mostly just because of uh, Mertens. Okay, yeah. I mean, it was a good generation to start following that team. I mean, the so-called golden generation of Belgian football, even though they never actually uh, ended up winning anything. There's so many star players on that team. So that's yeah, pretty cool. I mean, definitely. he must have been uh, pretty happy to see him you know, become a father not too long ago. Oh, definitely. I'm still in my early days, so I'm far from fatherhood, but I was definitely happy for him and Kat, definitely. Yeah, and we're going to talk about uh, baby Cheeto witnessing his first goal, or his father's first goal that he saw his father score. So let's get to the match. As you know, we lost this match 3-2 to at the Maradona. 
Nicholas Gonzalez, Jonathan Icone, and Arthur Cabral scored for Fiorentina, while Dries Mertens and Victor Osman scored for Napoli. We're going to talk about each of the goals in part two, but I want to start with just some general thoughts on the match. Obviously, we're all gutted by the result, but I don't think we played that poorly. Scott, was this a case of a team playing well and just not getting the result? Yes and no. I felt like, obviously, scoring two goals, it's not horrible. Should you know, win you games, but I felt like there were too many defensive lapses where we couldn't create because they were pressing and we just had defensive errors leading to goals. So I think definitely we we played a great game, but I think we just fell short when it came to stopping their counters and creating ourselves. That's one thing that's concerned me, particularly of late. We saw it in the Atalanta match as well, that we really struggle to play out of that press. I mean, I feel like we played out of it with relative ease earlier in the season. I don't know if that's because we were well-rested after the summer, although there wasn't a whole lot of a summer. I don't know if it was because you know we started the season with a bit of an easier schedule, and maybe that made us look a bit better than we were. For me, I thought this match, in a way, was the opposite of the Atalanta match. Against Atalanta, there were long stretches where they were the better side and they created a number of chances, but their finishing was poor. Meanwhile, in that match, we didn't create that many chances, but when we did, we were clinical and we ultimately walked away with the three points. In this match, there were long stretches where we were the better side and created a number of chances, particularly in the opening quarter, the opening half hour of the match, let's say, but our finishing was poor. And, you know, according to the official match report, Fiorentina had nine scoring chances, which is certainly more than we had against Atalanta. But their performance in this match was similar to ours against Atalanta in that they took their chances really well. But altogether, I thought we played well. Like I saw some people online comparing this result to the Hellas Verona match last season. And maybe that's true in terms of just the feeling we had after the match. But I don't think it was true in terms of the performance. I I think in the Hellas Verona match last season, we just didn't show up. Whereas I do think we showed up for this match. We just didn't get the result. And that's sports. I mean, sometimes that happens. Of course, you hope it doesn't happen during an important stretch of the season. Now, as Napoli fans, we have a tendency to focus on what our players and coaching staff got wrong. And there was plenty of that, which we're going to get to later. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there was a lot that the Fiorentina players and coaching staff got right. Was there anything that stood out to you in terms of Fiorentina's performance? Yeah, definitely. Huge props to them. They walked in to a very hostile arena, you know, now that we're back at full capacity and they played a really good game. But I thought they did well towards the end of the game when it was a... 3-2 and we were pushing for the equalizer. I really liked their approach to keep on pressing and going for a fourth rather than sitting back and time-wasting. I really respected that from them. I thought Igor was incredible against Osimen. It was really frustrating to watch, but props to him. He played a fantastic match. You know, in our preview of this match with Giancarlo Rinaldi, he did say that one thing you can expect from Fiorentina is that 
they're going to play their game. It doesn't matter who the opponent is. It doesn't matter, you know, what's at stake. That's what they do. They play their game. And we saw that in this match. I completely agree on Igor. I thought he had a phenomenal match, which is amazing when you consider that Victor Osman still scored a goal and got an assist. But it was clear to me that he was tasked with marking Osman. You know, we've seen other teams have to use two center backs. Like Milan had to use Kalulu and Tamori just to shut him down. Whereas Igor was able to do it on his own. I counted, I think, at least 10 occasions where we played the ball to Victor. Most of the time they were long balls and Igor either got to the ball first or just simply outmuscled Victor off the ball. So that was one thing that I definitely agree was really impressive. Another thing Fiorentina did well was they used their width with Saponara on the left and Nico Gonzalez on the right. And then they also sent Biragi and Venuti forward to join the attacks on either side. And I think that created a few different challenges for us. One was that they became an attacking threat, particularly those fullbacks playing crosses into the area. But I also thought that that created a problem for our attack because when those fullbacks get forward, then it becomes the responsibility of our wingers to track back to help defense. We see a lot of Vincenia back there. We see a lot of Politano back there. And we were clearly looking to play the long ball. And I think that was part of Spalletti's game plan that he was anticipating a high press and a high line. So he wanted to play the ball over the top to Victor in space. But that's also why we never seemed to have anyone supporting Victor when we did that because our wingers were constantly tracking back to defend Fiorentina's fullbacks. And then the third thing I noticed was sort of related to the second, which was that when Fiorentina got the ball, particularly in transition, they would immediately send four or five players forward to join the attack, which is what happened on both of their first two goals. One last question before we dig into the details. I want to talk a little bit about the other result this weekend that I guess was favorable to Inter, which is that Milan drew for the second time in a row. This time it was a scoreless draw with Torino. I think the previous round was a scoreless draw with Udinese. Had they won there, they would have been four points clear of us at the top of the table. Instead, they're two points ahead of us and Inter would be three points if they win their game in hand. I'm curious to know how you view that Milan result. Are you a glass half full kind of person who says that this result kept us in contention? Or are you a glass half empty kind of person who says that this was yet another missed opportunity to go top of the table? Definitely a glass half full because um, I think going into this, even before the Fiorentina game, before Torino, Milan, we had this expectation where we knew that this Scudetto was not going to be won on just us winning. We needed some luck our way too. This was not going to be just a, you know, our futures in our own hands. No, we needed extra help going into this. So I think, you know, it definitely heals the wound a little bit of the Fiorentina game, but I think we should still be optimistic. I think we shouldn't give up on the Scudetto until match day 38 is over or until we are mathematically out. That's just me personally. I can understand why people would be way less optimistic because, you know, I've not been a fan incredibly long. I wasn't able to witness the 91-point season 
That was literally a year before I started watching. So I might just not have like those heartbreaks where I get my hopes up a lot and then it's just crushed. So maybe it's just personal where uh, I just haven't experienced a lot of that. But I definitely think we still have a solid shot at the Scudetto just as Milan does and just as Inter does because they're all, all three of us, we're all relying on dropping points. It's not just going to be who can get the most. It's going to be who can get the most while also who can drop the most. Yeah, well, don't worry. You're a young guy, so there's lots of time for heartbreak for you. So you don't worry too much about that. But yeah, I'm going to be optimistic as well and say that the, the glass is half full. Because of that draw, we're still alive. I would have felt a lot worse if Milan was four points clear. Of course, there's still the small matter of Inter to worry about, and they have a comparatively easy schedule. So we're going to need help from other clubs, like you said. But I also understand why fans are frustrated because this was a missed opportunity. It was actually the fourth time this season that we missed an opportunity to go back to the top of the table. There was the 1-1 draw to Inter, then the 1-1 draw to Cagliari, which was very nearly a loss. Then the 1-0 loss to Milan, and now this loss to Fiorentina. What's even worse is that three of those four losses were at the Maradona, which has become a huge problem for us this season. Our home and away forms have been night and day. Away from home, we have a record of 11 wins, four draws, and only one loss, which is the best away record in the league. But at the Maradona, we have a record of nine wins, two draws, and five losses, which is seventh in the league. We've now collected eight more points away from home than we have collected playing at the Maradona. That'll do for part one. In part two, we'll start reviewing the goals. Welcome to part two of the Fortinopoli podcast. So let's talk about the goals next. And I suspect as we go through them, we'll also cover some individual performances as well. Nico Gonzalez opened the scoring around the half hour mark. Scott, what did you make of that goal? Uh, well, all I got to say uh, is uh, another Argentinian uh, player for Fiorentina breaking our hearts. I felt Cooley, he goes down and he's looking for the ref. And I think, yeah, it's a questionable, you know, it's it's deserved of a protest. It wasn't a foul. Let's just get that clear. That was, he just fell uh, on just a 50-50 ball. I think there he's an experienced veteran where he knows that he just has to get up and get back into his position. I don't know how much, if he had gotten up immediately, how much it would have affected the goal because it was just a perfect shot from Nico Gonzalez. But I think if he could have gotten up immediately, it could have maybe had some effect. You know, hindsight's only twenty twenty. We'll talk about Koulibaly in a moment because I think he struggled with Artur Cabral in this match. Cabral seemed to have his number both in terms of pace and in terms of physicality. And I think just like with many goals or most goals even, you can never really pin a goal on any one individual. I know a lot of people were pointing out that Lobotka appeared to sort of stop to catch his breath when Nico Gonzalez scored. I think that might have been a little bit harsh because he had to mark three players. Gonzalez, Castrovilli, and Saponata were all unmarked in the area. He elected to go for the two guys at the top of the box, and it just so happens that Rachmani's header went straight to Gonzalez. So you could, I suppose, fault Rachmani, but I think he's just trying to get ahead on the ball there and hope that someone gets to the second ball. 
Politano was in the area marking no one. And as you said, Koulibaly was on the ground after trying to win that aerial duel. So there's a lot of different people you can point to. I, I also question where Fabian and Zelensky were because neither were anywhere near the goal. And, you know, I know Fabian was pressing high at the start of the play, but at least one of them had to track back to help defend because there were just way too many Fiorentina players in the area. And like I said, when they got the ball, particularly in transition, they were sending numbers forward. So we needed to get guys to drop back. I want to go back to Koulibaly. You know, over the last two matches, he seemed to struggle a little bit, and he's usually our rock at the back. Are you concerned at all about that? Not at all. Like I said before, he's a seasoned veteran. He will come back from this. I think it's... I think, like a lot of things in this game, it's just overreactions and just panic button way too early. I think Koulibaly will come back from this with a professional attitude. He'll come back stronger. He's been with the club for a long time, one of the longest current active Napoli players. He wants to win more than anyone. He'll realize his mistakes and he will come back against Roma and do his best to shut down Abraham and Co. I'm not too concerned either. I think if Koulibaly is available, he starts and there's no question about it. I can think of a couple of reasons why he may be struggling, though I don't know if these are really the reasons why. But I mean, one is that he's fasting for Ramadan, which means not eating or drinking water, at least as far as I know, until the sun sets. I also think that playing on a suspension, which he has been for the last four matches, may be affecting the way he plays as well. I'd like to think he's professional enough and and he's good enough to not let it affect his play, but I think that's a possibility. I mean, especially when you consider the teams that we played against during that stretch, Hellas, Verona, Atalanta, Fiorentina, all over a span of four matches, and then Roma coming up next. Maybe there's just in the back of his mind this idea that we can't lose him for these any of these big matches, so he might be playing a little bit more cautiously. I think he'll be able to play a little bit more freely against Roma because the match after that is against Empoli. So even though they beat us in the Girona and Data, if there's a game to miss, that's probably the one to miss. Let's move on to the equalizer, which was scored by Dries Mertens, as we mentioned before, just before the hour mark. That was his 145th goal in a Napoli shirt. And as I said, it was the first goal witnessed by his newborn son, Chiro Romeo, in the stands. Scott, this was a fantastic goal. Yeah, just a perfect finish. It's just what you expect when you have someone the caliber of Chiro. It was a really nice heads-up play by Osimen to slot the ball back to him. And it was you can't really hit a ball better. It was straight into the corner. You know, there's like not much to say, just it was perfect. Yeah, he did hit that really well. And I agree, Osman showed great vision to spot Merton's late run at the top of the box. Just like I said, with any given goal that you concede, there's you can't typically pin it on one player unless it's maybe, a, you know, a goalkeeper error or a poor pass or something that leads to the goal. I think likewise, there were a lot of players that made great plays in the build-up to this goal. It started with actually Mario Rui making a slide tackle on Nico Gonzalez in our own area. And then David Ospina made a great heads-up play to keep the ball in play instead of just allowing it to go out for a corner kick. And then Insigne, even though you know I've had mixed feelings about his performances of late, 
I thought he played a gorgeous through ball to Osimhen. So that was sort of the pass before the pass. And then, yeah, the finish by Mertens, perfectly placed in the bottom corner. First time hit, no keeper has any chance of making a save there. So we saw Osimhen and Mertens link up on this goal. We see that Zielinski is out of form and has been for a while. Do you think Mertens should start in the 10 for the balance of the season? Without a doubt. I don't know why it hasn't been done earlier. He's been in consistent form all year. He's shown up in the big games. You know, he he came on against Inter in the first meeting with them, and he made a huge impact, scored a really nice goal. He had to start the Juventus game at the start of the new year, and he scored our one goal. He's just a big game player. He shows up. He's a team player. I think he has to start. And uh, Zielinski is going to have to earn his playing time because right now it's not cutting it. And he's he's just not been in form. And I can't remember the last time he scored. Was it the uh, first leg against Barcelona? Yeah, you're right. I think that's definitely what most Napoli fans would love to see. And it makes a lot of sense when you consider how few goals we're getting out of our wingers and out of our midfielders. I have my doubts about whether Spalletti will actually do that. Even though we play attacking football, he's still fairly conservative. And we have to remember that Anguisa wasn't available for this match. And when he plays, Fabian has more freedom to go forward. And that's not an alibi, by the way, because Fiorentina were missing arguably their best player in Lucas Torreira due to injury. So it's not like we can say, oh, if we had Anguisa, we would have won this match. But if I had to guess, I'd say Spalletti is more likely to use Fabian in the 4-3-3 with Lobotka and Anguisa than he is to play with Mertens in the 10. And I know fans probably don't want to hear that, but I think he's going to continue to use Mertens as a substitute when we need to bolster the attack. Hopefully I'm wrong because our current approach really hasn't worked well, at least as far as goal scoring goes. I talked about Italiano's tactics. He made some really smart substitutions, and one of those substitutions, Jonathan Icone put Fiorentina ahead eight minutes after we equalized. Scott Spalletti said after the match that all of Fiorentina's goals were the result of episodes, and I'm not exactly sure what the episode was on the first goal. Maybe it was what he thought was a foul on Koulibaly or the Rachmani header. The episode in the second goal was a supposed foul by Gonzalez on Mario Rui. Do you think there was a foul there? I would have to go back and look. I don't think I saw anything. The Akone goal, it was a five on four. You know, not much we can really do. And uh, it was crossed in to Akone, Zenoli, did his best to block it, but it was just a perfect strike. So I'd have to honestly go back and look at the build-up to that. To be honest, I don't think there was much there, and maybe that's why it didn't even stand out to you. And I think what happened was when Nico Gonzalez broke on the right wing, Mario Rui went to ground. But I think this was one of those situations where he probably just fell and tried to sell it because he got caught out of position and... It certainly wasn't clear and obvious enough for the VAR to cancel the goal. And people may may have their conspiracy theories about the officials and, and whatnot. But personally, I don't think there was enough there to give the foul. Naturally, the Mario Rui haters use this as an opportunity to blame him. 
completely ignoring all the good he did in this match. I think that battle with Nico Gonzalez was a lot of fun to watch as well, just like the one with Igor and Osman, even though Osman didn't exactly win that battle. I mentioned the tackle that Mario Rui made on the Mertens goal. That was one play. He also got the assist on the Osman goal, which we'll get to in a little bit. And even on this goal, Fiorentina still had plenty of work to do, so I don't think we can entirely blame it on Mario Rui. Again, we saw Fiorentina players bursting forward once Nico Gonzalez got the ball. And then I mentioned Fiorentina being clinical. You cannot strike a ball any sweeter than Icona did there. And I think Zanoli was a little bit unlucky, as you said, to see the ball go through his legs. And then once again, Ospina had no chance on the shot. So that'll do for part two. In part three, we'll review the remaining goals. Welcome to part three of the Fortsanopoli podcast. So we just talked about Jonathan Nicone's goal to put Fiorentina up two to one. That was his first goal since joining Fiorentina in the winter. Fiorentina's other winter signing, Artur Cabral, scored the third goal only four minutes later. We talked about Spalletti and the episodes leading to the goals. The episode on this goal was Rachmani trying to dribble out of the back and giving the ball away. But Scott, the finish by Cabral on this goal was probably the best out of the three. Uh, I don't know if I would say the best finish. Kone's was just perfect. And he had a defender in front of him, whereas, you know, this was just a one-on-one. He had a defender to his right, whereas uh, Ikone had a guy in front of him. But um, I think, you know, the defensive error, Ramani trying to do too much, he just needs to boot the ball up or find an open man there. Not much else to really say. It was just a really poor time to try to turn into prime Ronaldinho. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just a sucker for the Tira Giro, although I like it a lot more when Insignia is doing it than Artur Cabral, of all people. But I guess Insignia hasn't done a whole lot of that this season. On Rachmani, I don't think he had the best of performances. He was, I guess, well-rested after missing the Atalanta game due to suspension, but he also missed a lot of training during the week. He had a, a cold or a flu that he was dealing with. It seemed like he took a heavy touch on the throw-in, and that's what's kind of started that push forward. But I completely agree. If if you're not sure what to do or if, you know, if you're in a dangerous situation, just play it safe and boot the ball long. Instead, he tried to dribble through a bunch of Fiorentina players, and he eventually got caught. It was actually Ikone who intercepted the pass, and then he played a lovely little backheel to Yusuf Mali before he played the ball to Cabral. So two of Vincenzo Italiano substitutes linked up in the build-up to the goal. And then, yes, Cabral's shot was, he didn't have anyone in front of him, but he also made a really good play to get past Lobotka to create that lane to the goal. There was a lot of talk after the match Speaking of substitutions, about a play that one of Spalletti's substitutes failed to make just moments before the goal. And for those who might have missed it, literally a minute before the Cabral goal, Osman played the ball out wide to Lozano. Mertens made the run behind Igor, and Lozano had a huge space to play the ball into. But instead, he took an extra touch, and Biragi blocked the pass. Scott, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that play because Lozano is already not well-liked by many of our fans, and that seemed to set off a lot of people. Yeah, watching that live, uh, it was pretty brutal. And then 
going back and seeing the paused frame of even before the heavy touch or not the heavy touch but the extra touch and just seeing all the open space you just can't help but wonder just what could have been and uh i'm not necessarily anti lozano but i'm not necessarily pro lozano i think it's a system issue because you see you see him with Ancelotti. Ancelotti misused him, no doubt about it. And then under Gattuso, they had a bit of a rough start, but once they started actually getting along, Gattuso got the most out of him. And now with Spalletti, he's gotten nothing out of the wingers. So I think it's not Lozano is bad. I think it's more so just the system is not helping Lozano because Palatano, Lozano, Insigne, all their production has dropped off this year. Yeah, that's a great point. And I get the fans' frustration given the situation. If he makes the pass and Merton scores, we go up 2-1 to one and all the momentum is in our favor. Instead, we went down 2-1. to one. But I think some of the reactions to this play were way over the top. I mean, Lozano's not the first player to ever miss an important pass. We've seen players of all levels miss sitters in front of the goal. Sometimes these things just happen. If you want to judge Lozano on his contribution over the last three seasons relative to how much we paid, then fine, I get that. But to your point, there's other factors at play as well. There's also, you know, other than maybe Victor Osman, I don't know if any other player on this team has suffered as many injuries as Lozano has. And similar to Osman, they've been kind of these awkward ones while he's on international break and so on. So that hasn't been easy either. But all of this talk about how everyone and their grandmothers could have made this pass and the suggestion that he cost us the match, I think that was a little bit much for me. I mean, we don't even know that Mertens necessarily would have scored there. And even if he did, we don't know what would have happened after that. Maybe we would have won the match. Maybe Fiorentina would have still come back and scored two more goals. So I think, yeah, it's a little bit harsh criticism on Lozano to act like, you know, that one moment cost us the entire match. And again, I mean, I never like when people take a still frame. I mean, in this case, it was probably warranted. If he plays the first time pass with his left, then the pass probably gets through instead of taking the extra touch. But yeah, I don't think we can pin this entire result, especially when you conceded three goals. I don't think you can pin it all on on one player. Let's move on to the final goal, which was scored by Victor Osman in the 84th minute. Scott, he gave us a little bit of hope that we might at least salvage a draw there. Yeah, it was a really nice build-up play. Rui made another excellent ball into the box. And then I think that might have been the best goal Osimhen has scored in his time at Napoli. Beautiful control with his chest. And then the first time volley shot, it was, it was, it left me speechless. I can't even find words to describe it now. But it was, I, I genuinely think that was the best goal he has scored for Napoli. Yeah, that was his 12th of the campaign, his 16th in all competitions, which is con- incredible production considering he's only made 26 appearances. I think the way he took that ball down and blasted it into the top corner without even thinking is a clear indication that he is playing with a lot of confidence at the moment. A lot of people I mentioned criticize Mario Rui for his involvement on the Iconen goal, but I didn't see too many of those people talking about the ball he played to Osman, which was just out of the reach of Igor. So yeah, 
it was a good goal. It's too bad it wasn't enough, or maybe it was a little too little too late. Scott, we've covered quite a bit in terms of individual performances already. Did you have any final thoughts on the match, on, on the balance of the season that you wanted to mention? Yeah, more so to a point you made earlier about how Fiorentina, they were attacking with not just their wings, but also their fullbacks were coming up and attacking. And I think that's that's like another issue with Napoli, where our fullbacks are more offensive-minded. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, Rui put in a great defensive performance against Atalanta, but I think his best contribution comes to when he's in the attack, crossing balls in, even in our own half when he's whipping it out. He's very great on the buildup, but I think like defense, he lacks in areas. And Zanoli, I mean, it's his second ever Serie A start. I can't expect him to be the most shut down fullback we've ever seen. And even when GDL, Di Lorenzo is healthy, he has his defensive issues too. So I think it comes back to maybe this summer we look at a defensive fullback. And I know we are heavily linked with uh, Matias Oliveira from Getafe. I believe that transfer is confirmed, but uh, I don't know much about him and I don't know how good he is on defensively. But I think that's definitely something we need to look more into is defensive fullbacks. Yeah, it's an interesting point because. I think the trend with modern football nowadays is for fullbacks to actually be attacking players. So it may be more of a philosophical thing where it really depends on how a manager wants to approach the match. I mean, generally speaking, when one fullback gets forward, the other stays back. So you always have three back. And, you know, if I were to criticize Mario Rui, yeah, I mean, he's he's not the greatest defender but I I don't think he's really cost us too much this season again if we can maybe pin that second goal the Ikone goal on him but I think a lot more had to happen before that ball went in my biggest criticism of him based on the point I just made about fullbacks being attackers now is that maybe he doesn't score enough which is not something we expect from Mario Rui but we've seen him hit the bar we saw in this match he had a great chance where to his credit, he made a great play to to win the ball or get ahead of, I think it was Venuti. And then it looked like Terracano was anticipating a cross to Osiman, so he kind of dove out of the goal, and all Mario Rui had to do was hit the target, and he would have, I think at that point, equalized, but instead he put it over the bar. So it's it's an interesting question on, on Zanoli. I think he's done well, at least because we have probably a, a lower bar for him, given that, like you said, it was only a second start. But perhaps we are missing a little of that offensive production from Di Lorenzo in terms of those those runs that he makes. And, you know, he's got a fair number of assists this season for a fullback. So we'll see when he can get back. I think we'll probably season only for a couple more matches. And hopefully we can figure out a way to uh, to get some more goals from guys other than Victor Osman. Because I think at the moment we're a little bit too dependent on Victor. And like you said, it's really been an issue all season. And in a way, it's almost a wonder that we're even still in the Scudetto race when you consider how little production we've gotten from our wingers who are forwards and you know how many results we've dropped at the Maradona. I think it's five losses now at home. So that's that's not 
very good, especially when we have another tough match coming up at home against Roma. Yeah, for sure. I almost kind of just want to offer to just play the rest of our games on the road because it feels like we just play better when we uh, have that lower expectation where you're going into an away match and you don't have thousands and thousands of people relying on you for a result. Obviously, away fans travel, but like it's uh, way less. So I hope that we can figure it out. There's no explanation for why we keep dropping so many games at home. Not only draws, but like the five losses out of our six this season at home. That's just unacceptable. And I just can't find a logical way to explain why we've been so poor at home. You're not the only one that sort of half jokingly suggested that, you know, that we should offer to play the rest of our games away from home. And, you know, the opposition would gladly take the, the ticketing revenue. And, you know, even the players, I think Koulibaly after the match said the same thing that they don't know why the results are not happening at, you know, when they're playing in front of their home fans, the Maradona used to be a fortress teams would, would fear going to that stadium to play matches. And now it doesn't seem to make a difference. It, like you said, we seem to get worse results at home. I don't know if it's because of the, like you alluded to, the added pressure of playing in front of that many fans. I was hoping that would motivate the players to have uh, a full Maradona, 55,000 people, whatever it was, cheering them on. And the best explanation that that I can come up with is that this, again, comes back to the mentality of these players, which is something we've been talking about for years. Where, you know, in the past, you know, this is something that I've had a few conversations with different people about, but we used to have players with more killer instinct, and that seems to be lacking right now. I know, you know, Victor, out of anyone, seems to want to win more than any other player on the team, but whether it's because Insignia is leaving and that whole situation or the injuries or, or whatever it is, we just seem to lack that killer instinct, I think. You know, a lot of people have talked about it, but I think Alessandro Del Piero was one of them that kind of talked about that. You know, Napoli seemed to, and I don't think this is a Juve-Napoli thing. I think it was genuine input and genuine feedback that, you know, Napoli does seem to drop these matches. And you talked about the disappointment earlier. After that happened so many times, it's almost not surprising that, unfortunately, this club seems to draw points in these big moments. A lot of people were comparing this match to the one in 2017-18, which personally I think was a little bit different. You know, the the famous match where Sadi said that Napoli lost the Scudetto in a hotel room, or I guess the day before. I felt that match was a little bit different in terms of uh, at least the controversy that was surrounding it. But, you know, it's another loss against Fiorentina late in the season when we're competing for a Scudetto. So unfortunately, that's not how we wanted things to go. But like you said earlier, I think the way teams are dropping points this season, the Scudetto race is far from over. We are going to need some help from uh, the opponents of Inter and Milan. But let's keep our fingers crossed and hope we can get this done. Scott, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I mean, you know, overall, I think we shouldn't be going as crazy as uh, we are. And uh, I think... Napoli fans, especially on Twitter, were were very, very quick to hit the panic button. I think right now we just 
We just have to still believe in the team because even though these results are frustrating, I think at the end of the day, these are professionals. This is potentially our last year with Insigne. Or no, it is our last year with Insigne. Potentially our last year with Mertens. And this is the best chance we've had since the 2017-91 point season. And I think it would just be beautiful to just send Insigne and Martins off with a Scudetto. And, you know, like you said, with the killer instinct, I think if anything, that should be an even more driving factor. The fact that Chilero might leave, the fact that Insigne is leaving, that we should do it for these two guys who've given their heart and soul to not only the club Napoli, but the city of Naples. Yeah, that's... I think a great point to wrap it up with a quick point on, on Twitter. I've learned that the best thing to do after a loss is to just get off of Twitter or you're going to lose your mind with all of the, the hot takes and uh, trying to boil things down to just one thing like a Lozano pass. Scott, that's where we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure. This is something I've been wanting to do for a while. You know, in my area, not a lot of Napoli fans. So being able to interact with you guys, it's great. Uh, Napoli Twitter, very great community. I love every single person I interact with on a daily basis. You know who you are. I don't really have to name names. But yeah, thank you for having me and uh, Forza Napoli Sempre. It was my pleasure. You can find Scott on Twitter at Spavord1387, or like I said, you might know him as Fabian Ruiz Enthusiast. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back in a few days to review our latest Primavera match and to preview our Easter Monday match against Roma. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Network.